Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Please turn with me in your Bibles to... uh... Romans chapter 4. We good? Romans chapter 4. We will read through verses 13 through 17 this morning. And let us... Now come before the Lord and pray for the reading and the preaching of his word. Father, we thank you so much for a beautiful day like this that you've given us. Springtime is a reminder of the renewal that we have in Christ. It's also a reminder of your your, your grace that you give to all of mankind, your general grace that you provide for all of our needs. You give us the sun to warm our bodies. You give us food to eat, shelter, Lord. You have given us communities to be a part of. You've given us friends, family members. All that we have is truly by your hand. You are the Father of lights, lights who gives all good gifts. And Father, but your greatest gift is redemption through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We thank you, Lord, that your word testifies to that truth. Not only does it bear witness to who you are, but it helps us to see our need for him, to see our need for Christ, and it gives us the ability to draw near him in faith. And I pray, Lord, as we approach your word today, our hearts would be open and our minds would be ready to receive the truth, that we would be willing to see the scriptures through the lenses that you have given us, the lens of Christ. I pray, Lord God, that you would help us, Lord, to trust you even more today and that we would grow in grace. And that, Father, then you would raise up in us a desire to share that hope with our community and the world. We give you the praise, honor, and glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, and the word of the sovereign Lord reads this way. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if the adherents of the law, who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. This is the word of the Lord. The uh, eminent theologian John Stott once wrote, we must never think of salvation as a kind of transaction between God and us in which he contributes grace and we contribute faith. For we were dead and had to be quickened before we could believe. No, Christ's apostles clearly teach Everywhere that saving faith, too, is God's gracious gift. So one of the things I think that baffles and frustrates parents is not the fact that their kids do things that are wrong from time to time. I think we just expect that, actually. We expect our kids to make mistakes. We expect our kids to do silly things, even downright dumb things at times. If you're a parent, you can... You can testify to that. We kind of expect it to happen because we know that learning and growing is part of the process for them. They're not always going to make their best decisions. They're not always going to do the right thing. So we're not surprised by that. What frustrates and baffles parents, though, 
is the fact that we have to repeat ourselves so many times. Can I get an amen to that? How many times do I have to tell you? Is the oft refrain in just about every household that's ever existed from the very beginning. Didn't I tell you not to do that? Didn't I tell you to take out the trash? Are you kidding me? Didn't I already tell you like a bazillion times to turn off the light when you leave the room? Right? Haven't I told you a million times to pick your socks up off the floor? How many times do I have to tell you not to put that in your mouth? I can go on and on and on, and I'm sure you guys have a list of your own examples, right? I remember when our kids were really young, Kim would look at me and ask why. She said, why do I have to keep repeating myself? Are our kids stupid? <laughs> Is it they just don't care? <laughs> Am I on a TV show where like I'm the victim and everybody's just is just pranking me right now? No. <laughs> I would tell her that it's just the way things are. That's the way that kids are. Right? It's right. And it's not that way just for parents either. It's for teachers too. I, th- I think. That, that, that teachers could actually get our kids home by noon every single day if they didn't have to repeat themselves so many stinking times. Stop running in the hallway. Put your phone down. Pay attention. No, you cannot have assign- credit on assignments that you don't turn in. Right? But the thing is, we need to realize is this is not limited to just kids or children. It's actually the same with grown-ups too. You want proof of that? That's why there's a thing at work called supervisors, right? Supervisors exist because at times during the day, somebody's going to do something they were told not to do. Or they're going to fail to do something that they were told to do, or they're going to forget to do, or forget how to do what you already taught them to do a thousand times before, but you're going to have to show them again. It's a universal experience, actually. And we all encounter this difficulty of communicating with other people, right? And we find ourselves repeating ourselves time and time again in order to get our message across. We have to repeat ourselves to customer service on the phone a thousand times. I have already told you my name and my account number. Thank you very much, right? We have to repeat ourselves at the drive-thru. No, I said no onions, right? When you get your order, what is there, right? Yeah. Wives have to repeat themselves to their husbands only to hear i'm sorry i wasn't listening (laughs) and you have to repeat yourselves everywhere you go when it comes to the gospel no you don't have to get your act together or get serious about what you're doing to come back to god you're saved by grace alone through faith alone in christ alone i think this is part of the reason why paul is so deliberate in his explanation of the gospel and in his letter to the Romans, when, as we've been going through this, you have seen like Paul is really taking his time and he keeps repeating the same themes over and over again. I think it's because he knows that if he's going to ever, like, if he's ever going to get his point across, he's going to have to make a point to repeat himself over and over and over again. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And then he begins to unpack the gospel in the most complete explanation of the Bible of what the gospel is. And he is very, very deliberate about it. Beginning in verse 118, all the way through 323, he develops the doctrine of the depravity of man, makes it clear that all people, Jew and Gentile alike, have rebelled against God and rightfully are objects of his wrath. Now, he could have just said that in one verse, but it takes all that time to explain it. And this includes people who think that they're good. And who think that they're righteous, but they are unrighteous and ungodly by nature. People are deserving of God's justice. And then in 3.23, all the way to the end of chapter 4, Paul painstakingly makes it clear that justification, being declared righteous and having our sins forgiven, is by faith in Christ as a gift of grace. In fact, in Romans 3, 24 and 25, he says, mankind is justified by his grace as a gift. Pretty clear. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. The next verse, he says, it is to show his righteousness at the present time that he might be the just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. 
Next two verses. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified apart from the works of the law. Verse 31. Do we overthrow this law by faith? No, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Moving into chapter 4, verse 3. And what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 5. To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Verse 9, for we say that faith is counted to Abraham as righteousness. Verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he held by faith. The point that Paul has been deliberately making in this part of the gospel is justification. The act by where God, through Christ, declares a person righteous and forgives their sin is a gift of grace received by faith apart from works. It's clear. That's the point that he's making. In fact, John Stott summarizes this. He says, for grace gives and faith takes. Faith's exclusive function is humbly to receive what grace offers. That's all that faith does. What God offers us in justification through Christ That's received solely on the basis of faith. But as simple as this message is, as clear as Paul makes his point in Romans and in Galatians and the rest of his letters, and as often as he repeats this, there is still a world full of people out there who still don't get it. Worse than that, there are churches full of people who still don't get it. I made a really short uh, video this week that that I reposted on Facebook where I took some time to explain how Paul uses Abraham as an example of how we're justified by God simply on the basis of faith, right? And he did so long before Abraham was ever circumcised, long before there was even a law to have, long before even baptism was a thing, right? Abraham was justified on the basis of his faith. Abraham believed God, and it, his faith, was counted to him as righteous. But invariably, I would get these comments on my post. It's like clockwork. I will get them, and not just one, but multiples. People who, with all the confidence in the world to say, the Bible doesn't teach that you're saved by by faith alone. I'm like, have you read the Bible? They say, no, we must be saved by the law to be saved. We must must observe the Torah in order to be justified. We must be baptized to be born again. They'll pull one scripture out of context and then hold it up as if that's the proof. And I'm like, you haven't even listened to the things I've said. You have not heard at all what I'm saying from the scriptures. Have you not read Romans 1 through 4? You don't have to read anything else in the Bible, just read that. Or Ephesians chapter 2, by itself, that's, that'll clear it up for you. Have you read Galatians, Hebrews, or how about the Gospels? There just seems to be something hardwired in people to believe there has to be something more to salvation than simply grace alone through faith alone. That's why the gravitational pull of religion tends to lean towards legalism. Because there's something in us that tends to believe that we have to do something to make God love us. we got to do something to please God. We, we must do something to demonstrate that we're worthy. We must do something to prove to the world that God approves of us. We must do something that makes us deserving of God's grace. We need to do something. Being up, being, giving up a bad habit or performing some ritual like getting baptized. We must do something, seems to be where our hearts and minds go. And and I say that because we need to be careful not to criticize other people when it comes to this. We need to examine our own hearts because even born-again Christians can, can still fall into this trap. Not only can we tend to judge other people by external standards that we won't hold ourselves to, right? We even begin to judge ourselves at times. I know that I can. I know that when I know for a fact that I am made righteous before God, and I know that my sins are forgiven on the basis of, of faith by the grace of God in Christ alone, 
But there's something in me at times that still feels like I should be doing something that makes God love me. There's something in me that feels like I still need to do something to be worthy of what God has done for me. I can feel like God could not possibly love someone as broken as me. Right? I can, especially when I fall short, especially when I do something stupid or fall into sin, I feel internally like I need right, to get right with God by trying harder or being more sincere or getting more serious about obedience and, and really like focusing on walking in holiness and even like somehow trying to punish myself internally for how I fall short. And I think many of you might have even experienced the same thing at times to where you look to the heavens and go, am I even saved at all? How can, how can God love me? How could God even like care about someone like me? You feel like that if it's up to you to prove somehow, some way that you were, are worthy of God's grace. In fact, you might have even read a book or you might have even heard a preacher say that this, that's how it is, that you've got to prove, you've got to demonstrate somehow, some way that you are worthy of God's grace. But the truth is, we, the, the, the truth that we need to come back to and the truth that we need to hear again and again and again and the truth that we need to remind ourselves of continually over and over and over again is simply the message that Paul's communicating here. We are saved. We are justified we are made righteous by god's grace alone through faith alone in christ alone and his atoning work alone it's not something that you did to earn this is the gospel message the good news that makes the good news the good news. This is the message that we, we must proclaim with the tenacity of Paul. That there is no other way to salvation. You are not going to save yourself by your efforts. You are not going to be justified in the sight of God by your religiousness. It is only by faith holding on to the promise that God has made. And this is the message that Paul continues to reinforce today in this text. Is if he didn't make it clear enough, he still continues on. So turn with me to Romans chapter 4. And we'll begin looking at verse 13. And I have to tell you, to the relief of my children, I had planned to work through verses, verse 17 this morning. But as I went through my notes, I realized there's a whole lot to talk about here. And given the fact that I already have a tendency to go along anyway, I felt it was probably... Um, best that we break this up into two parts. So we'll probably focus this morning on 13 and 14 and then address the other uh, next week. But in verse 13, we read, for the promise of Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And I think it's important for us to notice the word for. It's a very small word, but we know that for is a conjunction. It is a it's a word similar to the word because. And what that means for us is that what Paul is saying in this text is actually connected to the things that he's already said, which means if we're going to understand what Paul is getting at here in this passage, we need to keep it in context. And so what we know is that Paul in this part of Romans has been unpacking the gospel and he's already made his case against humanity, as we've already noted. And he's explained the good news that justification is by faith. And beginning in chapter 4, Paul has been using Abraham as an example of how one is to be made right, right? Made righteous by faith, a theme that he will continue. But more specifically, in chapter 4, Paul has connected all believers to Abraham and his example. It's an important thing that we cannot overlook. It's an important thing for us to remember and keep in mind. All believers are part of Abraham's family, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles also. In fact, if you remember, some of you when you were kids, the Sunday school song, Father Abraham, how many of you remember that song? Father Abraham has many sons, many sons has Father Abraham. Yeah, I'm one of them, so are you. So let's just praise the Lord, right, right arm, left arm, you know. Okay. It's kind of repetitive, right? Right. 
But he gets the point across. You remember that, right? Well, this is where it comes from. This development of Paul's theology that we see in chapter 4, how we are part of Abraham's family. Look in verse 1, Paul says, What then shall we say was gained or learned by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? So he begins chapter 4 by asking the question of the Jews who are struggling with justification by faith alone. And he reminds them that Abraham is their forefather. Physically, he is reminding them that Abraham is their biological ancestor. But then, by verse 11, Paul says, the purpose, Abraham being declared righteous by faith before being circumcised, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe. God in what he did, what he, God did what he did in history through Abraham, not simply to make him the physical ancestor of the nation of Israel, but to make him the father of all who were made righteous by faith. Those being circumcised, he says, those without being circumcised, and those circumcised who are, merely, who are not merely circumcised, but who walk in the footsteps of faith. Abraham, I mean, Paul makes it clear that Abraham is the father of all who believe. And then in verse 16, as we will see, he says, that's why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only, the, 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 not, not only to the adherent of the law, but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as is written, I've made you the father of many nations. You see, Paul is developing in his letter the understanding of Abraham's true family, not his physical family his true family the family of faith god's elect in the old testament and the new testament god's people who were both jews and gentiles and what we need to see is paul is exposing the fuller understanding of god's redemptive work in the old testament paul is helping us to see what god is doing with abraham and the nation of israel not just in a physical sense but a broader spiritual sense and this brings to mind the important truth about interpreting the Scriptures. And what we need to understand is the New Testament makes explicit, the New Testament makes explicit what was implicit in the Old Testament. It's one of the most important things we remember when it comes to the text. We are not Old Testament Jews. And we have a lot we can learn from them and their actions, but we need to remember that the New Testament helps us to interpret what happened in the Old Testament. The New Testament reveals what was concealed in the Old Testament, hence the word mystery that Paul uses. Or in other words, Christ is the lens through which we interpret the Old Testament and see the significance of what God was doing in the Old Testament. And the reason why this is important for us to think about and remember is because this is exactly what Paul is doing here. If you do not understand that, you will miss exactly where Paul is going. He is looking back on the time of Abraham and the promise that God made him through the lens of Christ and his redemptive work in history. Because notice he says, for the promise of Abraham and his offspring is that he, Abraham, and by implication his offspring, would be heir or the rightful inheritor of, the world. Now this right here can be a bit confusing for us because if you know anything about the Old Testament, that's not exactly what the Old Testament says. In fact, Paul isn't quoting from Genesis 15. He's interpreting Genesis 15. That's the thing that we need to remember. He's not quoting Genesis 15. He's interpreting Genesis 15. He's taking what Genesis 15 says about Abraham and he's interpreting it through what has been revealed in Christ. Now, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this because we could spend a month of Sundays on this particular topic. But it's important for us to understand where Paul is coming from. So really quickly, turn with me to Genesis 15, beginning in verse 5, and I'll show you what Paul's doing. Genesis 15, beginning in verse 5. 
And it says, And he, God, brought him, Abraham, outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. God has promised to grant Abraham not only a child, but a huge family. A family that would include the nation of Israel, but also, as Paul has interpreted, all believers who live by faith. Right? Because in this moment with God, Abraham now is the example of that faith for all who believe. In fact, it says in verse 6, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. This, by the way, is the verse that gives Paul's explanation context. And this is the thing that Paul is drawing our attention to. This is, there was a promise that was made to Abraham. Abraham believed the promise, and then God counted his faith as righteousness. That is the pattern. That is the pattern. God promises, Abraham believes, God counts him as righteousness. There's nothing else. This, by the way, is the same pattern for Christians as well. If it's not clear enough already, God has promised redemption through Christ. We believe, and on the basis of that faith, we're declared righteous because of what we believe. Not because of what we did, but because we believe. Abraham is our example and our father because of that. But then look at verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out, of, out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. This right here is a further development of God's promise. The promise began with a family and now it extends to the land. God has promised to make him a mighty nation and now he has promised that he would give him the land or he'd be heir to the land. And this right here is why Paul is pointing us to the text today. The promise of the land, which if you're paying attention, then you should ask yourself the question, how does Paul interpret this passage in Genesis in such a way that it becomes a promise of the world rather than a promise of the land? You notice that, right? Paul has changed that. Paul has interpreted that differently. He says that he's heir of the world and not just the land. How can that be? Well, let's look at Romans 4.13, he says, For the promise of Abraham and his offspring, that he would be heir of the world, right? not simply the land. Again, Paul is not simply quoting the text. He is interpreting the text in light of the finished work of Christ. He sees in the text of Genesis through the broader lens of Christ's redemptive work. Right? But even still, how does, that, how does he get there? Like, how does he make that leap from land to the whole world? Well, he continues in, in Genesis, beginning in, in verse 8. He says, but he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Possess the land is what he's asking about. He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him these and cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. And the sun was going down. A deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years, foretelling of the enslavement of the nation of Israel. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterwards, they will come out with great possessions, foretelling of the exodus, which, by the way, is itself a type of, of Christ's redemptive work that we look to. As for you, in verse 15, he says, You shall go through the, to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age, and you shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete, foretelling of Abraham's physical descendants entering into the promised land. And then in verse 17, it says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking pot and flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give the land, again, the promise for the land, from the river, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, 
to the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. What we see is not only is God promising to give Abraham a family and making him an heir to the land, God makes a covenant with Abraham to that effect. God makes a covenant with Abraham. And that's important for us to remember. He promises Abraham, Abraham and his offspring that they would be heirs of the land. And we know what this land is. We know that it is the promised land. We know that it's the land flowing of milk and honey, the land of Israel. And this promise that God made to Abram, just like the foretelling of the enslavement and the exodus, this promise was fulfilled in history. The promise was literally fulfilled in history. If you remember, Joshua led the Israelites across the Jordan River in a conquest of the promised land, and they took possession of it. It was theirs. Right? God did what God promised to do. He gave them the land. God kept his promise in history. So God promised, Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and God delivered on his promise. That is the pattern of redemption. Because what do we know about God? Is that he keeps his promises. That's what our hope is anchored to, is that he keeps his promises. But notice that Paul doesn't look back on this promise just for the historical value of proving that God keeps his promises. He interprets his promise through the lens of Christ's redemptive work, and he sees, by the leading of the Holy Spirit, the bigger redemptive theme contained in the promise, the bigger promise that the initial promise points to. That's why he says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring, that he would be heir of not just the land, but the world. And hear me, this is not a misunderstanding of the text. This is not a mistranslation or a mistake. Paul purposely uses the Greek word kosmu, which is the same word that we use for cosmos. This, this word means literally the world or even, even more broadly, the universe or creation itself. So there is no mistake. Paul knows exactly what he's saying. Paul is saying that the promise to Abraham was that he and his offspring would be heir of the entire world, at the very least, and all of creation itself in the broadest possible sense. Paul understands this to be a grand and glorious promise, not just for those people at that time, but for all believers. Paul is interpreting the Old Testament in light of the New Testament theology, seeing in this Genesis text a glorious promise from God and the reason for all of the world, Jew and Gentile alike, to rejoice. Paul sees in this promise to Abraham a great redemptive promise fulfilled in Christ. But how does Paul get here? How does Paul get to that place? Some criticize Paul ignorantly and dismiss his teachings because they think that Paul simply is just making up his theology. In fact, a lot of people, not a lot of people, but there are some people who say that, you know, really Christianity is just the Jewish part of the Bible, and you get rid of all that Paul says because he's making it up. But the problem is, as we've seen, is Paul is careful to ground his arguments in the Scripture itself, and he also is careful to ground his arguments in the robust Jewish theology so Paul isn't just making this up on the fly. The truth is, right, if you understand about history, what Paul is doing is he's not even saying anything that's even new or surprising. Again, John Stott, in his commentary on Romans, he explains, or he asks the question, he goes, how then does, did the land become the world? And he begins a three-part explanation. He says, partly, there was this principle, the, uh, the, as a general principle, the fulfillment of biblical prophecy has always transcended the categories in which it was originally given. What we need to realize is many of the Old Testament prophecies had a, had a fulfillment in history, right? And then a final fulfillment. Like, for instance, the Isaiah's prophecy of the virgin birth. There was a fulfillment in that in history, right? But then there was the final fulfillment in Christ. Or how about David's prophetic words in Psalm 22? 
David certainly experienced the emotions that he was feeling there in that psalm, but we know that that broadly applies to Christ. What we see throughout the Old Testament is many of the prophecies we look back on that respect to Christ, we see that there was fulfillment at some point in history. So that's part of the reason, right? John Stott continues, says, it's also partly that God made subsidiary promise that through Abraham's innumerable, pos- innumerable posterity, all nations on the earth would be blessed. That's what he said. All the nations on the, on the earth would be blessed. This promise multiplication led rabbis to conclude that God would cause them, Abraham's descendants, to inherit sea from sea and from river to the utmost part of the earth. Rabbis long before Paul saw an expansion in God's promise because God not only promised the land, but he promised that the nations, all nations, would be blessed through his offspring. And so they reasoned and interpreted that to mean that they would ultimately then be heirs of the entire world itself. But then there's more. John Stott continues, says, the third reason for Paul's statement is that, that Abraham would inherit the world is surely messianic. In other words, Paul not only saw this promise to Abraham as a historical promise of land, but it was a messianic promise as well. You see, the term offspring had come to be understood as the Messiah in Jewish theology. Rabbis before Christ looked to the promise of Abraham and his offspring and saw the word offspring and realized it's singular and not plural. And they began to see offspring as the coming Messiah, the the promise of the Messiah. In fact, if you see Paul's explanation in Galatians chapter 3, he confirms this. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into his offsprings, referring to the many, but referring to the one. He says, and your offspring, who is Christ? The promise to Abraham was seen not just by Paul, but others as well, as a messianic promise, a promise of Christ to come. Abraham and his offspring would be heirs of the world, was being seen as God promising the sending of the Messiah. Again, as Stott notes, As soon as Abraham's seed was identified with the Messiah, it was further acknowledged that he would exercise dominion over the over he would exercise universal dominion. In other words, he would rule not just Israel, he would rule the entire world. Paul interpreting this text through the lens of redemptive history saw the promise was for much more than just the promise of a piece of dirt in the Middle East. As Harrison notes in his commentary, the word promise is collective, referring to the totality of what God had promised. The truth is, Paul interprets this promise as the great redemptive promise of God. The promise that began in the covenant of redemption and the promise that was revealed in Genesis chapter 3 where God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. All the way to the promise of the new covenant where God says in Jeremiah 31, Behold, and the days are coming, declares the Lord, and I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Paul interprets the the promise of Abraham's great redemptive promise as the promise that we have in Christ. This is the thing that we need to see here. This is where Paul is coming from. And, And the reason for that is the promised land like everything else in the Old Testament, ultimately points to a greater reality. For instance, the temple points to the greater reality of God's presence with His people. Looking back from the New Testament, we can see that. That's why Jesus says that those who would worship the Lord would worship in spirit and truth and not just the location. How about the sacrificial system? What did that point to? Christ's atoning work. How about the nation of Israel being in exile and in bondage to, you know, in, to, to, to Egypt? 
It's a picture of humanity being in bondage to sin. And the Exodus points to Christ setting the captives free. The promised land was not the end itself, but a type and a shadow of a great promise for all who live by faith. We finally, when we finally cross over the Jordan, a metaphor for our death, and we step out of this land into the real promised land of heaven, where we enter God's real rest, where we, right, where God's sanctifying work is finally complete in us, where we will actually be with him as we were created to be with him and he with us. In fact, that's the promised land of, of Revelation 24. Revelation 24 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This is the promise that Paul ultimately is talking about. The ultimate hope that we have in Christ. Now that we can see, finally, what Paul is talking about and where he's coming from, notice he says the fulfillment then of this promise. Now that we understand what the promise is, the fulfillment of this promise did not come through the law, but came through righteousness of faith. Paul says the glorious promise that God made Abraham did not come from obedience to the law, but through the righteousness that was counted to him by him believing in God. And what we need to see is Paul is no longer engaging in a diatribe with an imaginary Jewish person where he's asking questions and going back and forth. He is now passionately monologuing. He is now preaching with a raised voice. The promise of Abraham, and by implication for all those like Abraham who were justified by faith, the promise didn't come from obedience to the law. The promise by righteousness that is credited by God is only on the basis of faith. This is Paul finally shouting, how many times do I have to repeat myself to you? How many times do I have to tell you to make you understand? How many times do I have to tell you the same thing over and over again? How many ways, different ways I have to explain this to you and your little brain that justification is by faith alone. It is not by the works of the law. And the thing is, is if Paul hadn't already done enough to make his case, he even gets more emphatic in the next verse, in verse 14. He says, for if the... if if." It is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs. Faith is null and the promise is void. Paul, notice here, doesn't mince his words. He's very clear. He says, if keeping the law is required to be, to be heir of the promise, then faith in God is pointless, is what he's saying. It is null, which literally means it has no effect. In other words, that faith has no power. It's just an empty belief. You might, it might as well be the same type of belief you have in Batman or the Tooth Fairy. And even worse, even worse, if our faith is no effect and those who keep the law are the ones who inherit the promise, the promise itself is worthless. That's what it means, that's what void means. It means worthless. If the promise of God to be justified or sanctified or adopted or glorified or even inheriting a piece of dirt are by the works of the law rather than faith, God's promise is worthless. Why? Because nobody can adhere to the law. Nobody can do it. That's why there's a gospel 
That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 3, really, really clear, nobody can do it. He says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they've all become worthless. No one does good, not one. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If the promise requires keeping the law, then the promise is worthless. But even worse, if keeping the law is required to inherit the promise, then God would be a liar. Now we're getting to the heart of the matter. Because the thing that we need to understand is that God made a promise to Abraham and he didn't set any conditions on the promise. I don't know if you've ever really noticed that when you read through Genesis. God did not set any conditions. Again, looking at Genesis 15, verse 5, he says, And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to them, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted him as righteous. Counted it to him as righteousness. God didn't set any conditions at all. He didn't say that if you will, I will give you a family if you will obey me. Those words are not in the text. He didn't say, I will make you a nation if you obey my law. In fact, the law didn't come until what? 430 years later. He didn't say that I will make you a mighty nation if you pray to me, if you sacrifice to me once a week, or if you give me 10% of your income. He didn't say anything like that. I will do what I promise if you get circumcised. No. God made a no-strings-attached promise. And Abraham believed that promise. And that faith was credited to him as being righteous in the eyes of God, making him the heir of that promise. If God then, after the fact, were to require obedience to the law, or circumcision, or even baptism to receive the promise... God would be a liar even worse. God would cease to be God. Because again, looking at Genesis 15, one of the things that we miss, because we don't understand Jewish culture, is what God did in that moment for that promise. Look at verse 7, it says, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out, of, out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you the land that you possess. But he said, O Lord, God, how am I to know what I, that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these and cut them in half and laid each half over against each other. And then in verse 17, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the two pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. What we need to understand is not only did, did God make a covenant with Abraham, He made a one-sided covenant with Abraham. This is a thing that we just don't think about oftentimes when we read the New Testament is the connection to the Old Testament. You see, the, in most covenants, you have an agreement between two or more parties. Both parties agree to do something and keep up their end of the bargain. And if one of them doesn't keep their end of the bargain, there are consequences attached to it for failure to keep that part of the covenant. And even more, in the ancient Near East, covenants oftentimes were ratified and made, much like what we see here in Genesis 15. You have sacrificial animals that are divided and cut in two, laid on either side, it's a gory graphic illustration, and both parties then would walk together arm in arm between these pieces, symbolizing their agreement and saying, if I fail to do what I promise to do, may it be to me like these animals. A covenant promise like that is a promise to forfeit your own life if you fail to do what you promised to do. This is a serious, serious covenant and what we see in the text is Abraham, or Abram at this point, doesn't walk between the animals. Did you notice that? He was asleep, but something else goes between the animals. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Well, what is the fire pot and the flaming torch? 
These are foreshadowing elements of how God would lead his people to the promised land. How did he do that? In a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. These are images representing God himself. God himself passed between the animals by himself. God himself ratified the covenant with Abraham. Not with Abraham's permission, not with Abraham alongside him. God himself, meaning this promise that he made had no conditions whatsoever. That this promise is completely up to God to keep. It is up to God and God alone to keep his promise. And if God had ever failed to keep his promise, he would cease to be God. That is the implications of this. God swore his promise by himself, that God himself put his own self up for security for his promise. And what that means is if after God made the covenant, if he changed the terms of the covenant, he would be in breach of the covenant and no longer fit to be God. And the promise then would be what? Worthless. As Paul reminds us in Galatians chapter 3, now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say to, to his offsprings, rather than referring to the many, but referring to the one, and to your offspring who is, in, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul, does not change, does not do anything at all to the covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance came by the law, it is no longer comes by the promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. As we've seen, Paul has been interpreting this promise in a wider context of redemptive history and applies this not to just Abraham, but all who have faith. Because he's the father of all who have faith, which means we are his offspring heirs of the promise. In fact, Paul even reiterates that for us in Galatians chapter 3. By the way, this is why you should read Galatians along with Romans. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, he says, and if you are Christ, I want you to hear this, please. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to what? To promise. Let's talk about what that means for us. This is the part where I really wanted to land today. And I really thought huh, I could actually get through this into the next part, but then I realized I couldn't. But this is the part that I really want for you to settle in and hear me on. There's a lot of background stuff that had to take place to get us here. So let's talk about the implications of this for your life. The promise of salvation, the promise of justification, the promise of, of, of righteousness by faith comes to us with no conditions. Your salvation has no strings attached to it. So let us settle the issue with a legalist once and for all. Let us not be bothered by the legalist anymore, ever again. God does not require you to keep the Ten Commandments to be saved. God does not require you to obey the Torah to be saved. God doesn't require women to wear long dresses, and he doesn't require people to give up cussing and attending church every Sunday in order to be saved. You are simply to receive the promise of justification that is in Christ Jesus as one of Abraham's children through repentance and faith in the gospel. End of story. I don't know how it could be any more clear than that. I don't know how philosophers tend to twist this up. I don't know how people will run to some church with an unqualified pastor who will say, but you better do this and you better do that and you better do this. Let's also settle the issue with those who hold to baptismal regeneration, those who believe that you must be baptized to be saved. God does not require baptism in order for you to be justified. Baptism is the fruit of your salvation, not the root of it. If he did require that, he would be a liar. And his promise would be void and our faith in him would be pointless. 
because the promise has no external conditions. Not to mention God gave us another example for us to look to to confirm our theology, and that's the thief on the cross. He came to faith in Christ with no external conditions. He initially was reviling Christ on the cross and finally seeing Christ for who he was, came to saving faith in the last moments of his life and repented and believed. What did Jesus say? Today you'll be with me in paradise. He didn't get baptized. He didn't have time to suddenly become Torah observant. He didn't have time to get himself right and cleaned up before God. He didn't have time to do anything except believe. To accept the promise that Christ had made by faith. So let's settle the issue once and for all. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from any works, apart from any religious activities, apart from our vain efforts to make God love us. It is the promise of God to those who have faith. And those who have faith in God's promise in the gospel have their sins washed completely away and are counted as righteous before God by, because of Christ and are adopted into God's family and given eternal life and receive the Holy Spirit who comes and lives in them and not only to guide them but to be then the guarantee of God's promise. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee or an earnest deposit. God has sworn by himself to save you. And Christians, so then I want you to hear me. If you have heard the gospel, if you have repented and believed the gospel, God's promise to redeem you is irrevocable. It is more sure than the sun coming up tomorrow morning in the east. God would sooner cease to be God than not keep his promise to bring you safely home. And you can live confident, confident in that promise that you were saved and you were kept saved by the power of God, the power that created the universe by a God who loves you, who had poured his grace and mercy out on you and who had taken such great pains to explain it to you again and again and again and again. All right. Just think, when your kids don't listen, just remember, it took you a long time to hear what God was saying to you. And my encouragement to you is you navigate then through this life. And I think this is where the rubber meets the road for Christians, Right? As you navigate through this life trusting in Christ, when you fall on your face and you make a mess of things and you will, it happens. When you feel like the whole world is against you and you feel completely unworthy of everyone's love because we all get there at some point. When you feel like there's nowhere else to turn, when you feel every bit is worthless As you think that you are, you don't run from God. Turn to him and look to the heavens. Grab hold of Christ and say, you promised. You promised that if I would believe, that if I trusted in you, you would not forsake me. You would not forget me. You would not leave me where I am. You promised that you would save me. And I believe that promise. That I am trusting in that promise. My whole life is hung to that promise. I'm trusting you with all that I am. I believe that you are what you claim to be. I believe with all my heart that you can do all that you promised. Believe in Christ and live assured. Assured, brothers and sisters, that you are a child of God and that nothing that happens in the rest of this world can change that. Nothing else in this world can change the fact that the immutable God made an immutable promise that can't be taken away from you. And if you were someone then 
who have not put your faith in Christ that way. My encouragement to you is this. The promise is for you if you repent and believe the gospel. The irrevocable promise of God that he made with all the conditions upon him. Your job is simply to receive it by faith. Believe and receive and you will be saved. And if you're someone who would like to come to Christ, talk to me or one of the deacons in this church. And we'd be happy to share with you how you can have assurance of your faith in Christ. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.